Father, uh, sometimes it just seems like everything's going great and everything's going the right way and we have our act together and other times we're just messed up and we need you. And we recognize that in all of it, no matter what we experience in this life, you are in control. And this morning we want to focus on you we believe that it is all about you, not us. So help us. Help us today to worship you, to hear from you, and to be changed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Going through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, and we are in this section, chapter 4 and chapter 5, is a, a view from heaven before all chaos takes place in the end of time, starting with chapter 6. And this morning, we're looking at, we worship God for who He is, no matter what happens, because stuff happens, sometimes little, sometimes big. How do we deal with it? So I thought we'd watch a little video clip, set the pace. Tuthmosis, what are you doing here? Tea, 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 tea. Ah. I'm going to put you where you belong. That's a bad day, but sometimes far worse things than that take place, don't they? And in the end of time, even far worse things will take place. We want to continue the view from heaven that we're seeing in chapter 4 and chapter 5 that is necessary to be able to endure, I say even flourish during tough times, especially the great tribulation. I say flourish because I believe alongside the persecution will come the manifestation of the Lord God Almighty to his people. This book, the book of Revelation, is to prepare God's people for tribulation at any time, but especially the tribulation at the end of time, which I believe is coming soon, perhaps even in our lifetimes. It's coming soon to a theater near you. Just kidding. So let's go ahead and look at the view. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 through 11. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. 
four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were in the middle and around the throne. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. (laughs) Now, here's a view from heaven. What were they doing up in heaven? They were worshiping. Worshiping God. I know a man who lost his memory and then thus his identity. That man is humanity. Humans have lost their identity at the fall. We were created to worship God, to love him, to enjoy him, to praise him. We were created for him to do this in harmony together. That was God's original plan. And here we see it going on up in heaven. So let's take a view of this. And first we see the angels worship God as holy in verses 6 through 8. It actually says, if you skip down uh, here in verse 8, it says, day and night they never stop. Now, that word, anapausis, doesn't mean necessarily that every moment of the day forever and ever and ever, they just continued to say the same phrase over and over and over and over and over. Okay, It doesn't mean that, and we know that from 9 and 10. It's the, the idea, even in the Greek, is that it's periodically that we worship the Lord. And, but we are going to be here on this planet, a refurbished planet, enjoying life, enjoying each other, working and so forth. But throughout eternity also worshiping God. So we're not going to be on this little harp, you know, little cloud playing harp wherever and ever and ever just saying the same thing over and over and over. Okay. So don't get that picture, but it is worship that's going to be going on forever and ever because we were created to worship. Now let's start here. It starts out in verse 6. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. We see the view, once again, like we saw last week. This is a view from the throne. We have to have this to be able to go through whatever it is we have to go through in this life. A view from the throne to see that God is on his throne, and it describes it here, that the sea was a sea of glass. You see, in worship... There is calm. The sea in the ancient Near Eastern times represented chaos. So here we see that chaos has been calmed. Uh, Remember the passage in Scripture where it talks about how Jesus walked on the water. 
Okay, and we read that and we think, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, he can walk on water. That's pretty neat. But we miss it because back in the ancient Near East, at that time, they understood what was going on. He was trampling over chaos. He was in absolute control. That's the picture they immediately got when they saw Jesus walking on the water. And here we see that the sea was a sea of glass. Like glass, it it means completely calm. God is in control. And then we have these living creatures. Who are these living creatures that he speaks of? I've already told you, haven't I? They're angels. Okay, but how do we know that they're angels? You see, when we compare them, they have the characteristics of the seraphim in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and the characteristics of the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. And those are angels, angelic beings. And so we see here that these are angelic beings worshiping God. In George Eldon Ladd's commentary on this, passage. He says about these beings, the fullness of eyes represents ceaseless vigilance and unlimited intelligence, and the wings suggest swiftness of movement. It seems quite likely that the four different heads are intended to represent different aspects of nature. The wild beasts, domesticated animals, human beings, and flying creatures This, in turn, may be interpreted in two different ways. Either the cherubim uh, represent the praise and adoration extended to the Creator by the totality of His creation, or else they represent angelic beings who are used by the Creator in executing His rule and His divine will and all the order of His creation. They are created spirits who are thought of as mediating the divine energy and power in all the world. The fact that they sing a song of adoration... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, suggests that they both that both interpretations may be correct. They represent all of creation, which was made to worship God, and they represent these angels to rep to who lead us all and help us in this life to get our focus on God to worship God. So these living creatures kind of described a little differently, but this representation that all of creation was made to worship God. And it says that God is holy. See what, how they worship. Holy, holy, holy Lord God, the Almighty. We see that God is holy. By the way, this is the first of five songs in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So this view from heaven is all about worship, and we see five songs in this, these two chapters, and this is the first of those five songs. And it brings out, there's something going on. Maybe some of you have heard of this if you're in any kind of theological circles. Maybe the rest of you have never heard of this. But have you ever heard of the worship wars? You know, some of you are nodding yes, and some of you are like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, okay. in theological circles, there's this battle between what kind of worship is the good kind of worship, okay? If you just stop to think about it, worship wars, there's, that's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that we're battling over how to worship God. But it goes something like this. One group 
says that God is awesome in all of his glory. And as we read the Psalms, the worship should be these songs that are long and filled with great theological truths. And they really do need to be at least 200 years old and so forth. Okay? And so you, so you got this idea there, and that is absolutely true. The, the Bible is filled with those kinds of songs. And the other group over here, they say, no, you, you need to worship these short choruses, just short little songs that you sing over and over because that's how people will remember those songs and they'll go back home and they'll continue to sing the songs to the Lord. And they're both right. That's what we see in the Bible. And by the way, for people who say they don't like the choruses, look at this one. It's pretty short. And they're doing it day and night forever and ever. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God the Almighty who was and who is and who is coming. And so we see that, yes, worship should be all of that. We need those depth songs that sing about how great and awesome God is. And we also need those short songs that we can just express to God and we remember and we sing them, we catch ourselves singing them when we wake up in the morning and so forth. So get rid of the war, you know. Okay, now some people like, you know, different preferences. You like different styles of worship. That's okay. And some people don't like guitars or whatever, you know. And I understand that, although David played a guitar. It was a harp, but it was a stringed instrument, okay. That was a, that was a guitar, okay. So, all right. So, but here we see this, this first song, and it is clearly taken directly from Isaiah 6, where we had the image of the seraphim with the six wings and so forth. And they were singing this song way back then, and there's this, it's, a, it's an oldie but a goodie. Okay? They're singing this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you wonder, as you read that, uh, why the repetition? In Hebrew... Repetition was used for emphasis. Uh, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he did that. He was saying, this is really important. Now, everything Jesus said was important. But when he said, truly, truly, he's like, get, this is really important, guys. Repetition was used in the Hebrew culture to emphasize importance. Uh, a, a funny example of this is found in the, in the book of Genesis there's a place where, if you remember, the four armies were fighting the far, five armies and, uh, and Lot got carried away and all this and stuff. And, and one of the armies was beating the other army and they forced them and they ran away and, and they fell into these pits. And they, some, some translations call them tar pits and other translations call them bitumen pits. And, and they got, every translation you look at is a different translation for this. And the reason why it's so hard to translate it is because in the Hebrew, all it says is pit pits. It didn't say what kind of pits they are. It just says pit pits, that emphasis. In other words, there are pits and there are pet pits. And some pits are pittier than other pits. And these pits are the pittiest pits of all. Okay? That's kind of what, and that really is what it was kind of saying. Okay? So these are, so, so that's what we're here to see. But what we see here, holy, 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 is the threefold repetition was the superlative emphasis because it said this is who God is in his essence. He is holy. Kadosh in the Hebrew, the underlying meaning of holy or kadosh means to be separate. 
to set apart, to be different. Now, yes, there are some moral connotations as well, but the underlying essence of that word means to be separate. And God, in reference to God, it reflects his uniqueness. He is completely other than us. That's what they are recognizing in this. In Thomas Trevathan's book, The Beauty of God's Holiness, he says, most fundamentally as a divine attribute, it claims that God is other and set apart from everything else, that he is in a class by himself. God is not not just quantitatively greater than us, but qualitatively different in his greatness. He is transcendent, infinitely above or beyond us. The true God is distinct, set apart from all that he has made as the only true self-sufficient being. All his creatures depend on him. He alone exists from within himself. God is holy. That means he is not a part of creation. Pantheism, panentheism are false beliefs saying that God is the creation like Hinduism and other, other uh, beliefs. No, God is not a part of his creation. He spoke and he created everything, but God himself does not have a body. He is not physical. Now, he can take on the form of a physical body at some time, like the burning bush and so forth, but in his essence, he is spirit. He is not a part of creation. And he alone is infinitely perfect. It says, who was and who is and who is coming. The being of God is what we're seeing here. You know, his name, Yahweh, comes from the verb to be. He is the only eternal one, but he is the one who is coming back. It's going to be a day. This phrase, who was and is and is to come, is found several times in the book of Revelation. So we're going to see why it's placed in the places where it's placed. But the last two, it actually leaves out the last phrase, who is to come, because at that point he has come. That's going to be an awesome time, okay? But we'll have to wait till we get there or until he comes before we get there because you don't know how long it's going to take me to get through the book of Revelation. Okay. He alone is infinitely perfect and therefore it is all about him. In Leviticus 19 verse 1 and several other places it says, be holy for I am holy says Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of hosts. God is the ultimate set-apart one. For us to be holy as his creation, we are to be set apart to God for service and for love and worship and set apart from the sinful aspects of the world to be set apart from, and that's where the moral connotations come, come into play. We are called to be holy, for he is holy. 
in Donald McCullough's book, The Trivialization of God, he makes this statement. He says, our God is a consuming fire. As children, we were told not to play with matches, and as adults, we treat fire with caution. We must. Fire demands respect for its regal estate. It will not be touched. It will be approached with care, and it wields its scepter for ill or for good. With one spark, it can condemn a forest to ashes and a home to memory as ghostly as the smoke rising from the charred remains of the family album. Or with a single flame, it can crown a candle with a power to warm a romance and set to dancing a fireplace blaze that defends against the cold. Fire is dangerous, to be sure, but we cannot live without it. Fire destroys but also sustains life. The blaze of holiness admits no disrespect. Its boundaries cannot be trespassed. But this very distinctness is the fire that thaws our frozen hearts, the fire that draws us into relationship with God and one another, the fire that cleanses even as it purges. It's interesting. Uh, I remember a true story in, in our church in Florida, this one family, the son of the family, because he was playing with matches, burnt down two of their houses. Twice it happened, different houses, because the first one burnt down. Twice the kid burnt down their house and by playing with matches, you know. And that's a, so we, we understand here. But our God is a consuming fire. We have to get this point. It is all about him, not us. And so the angels, they recognize this in their worship as they worship God. Holy, holy, holy Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is coming. And then it shows the second part of this passage where the 24 elders worship God as creator. And it starts out here, verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. And they worship God as creator. Now it says that they fall down. Now, we need to understand what's... This is not kind of like what you might sometimes see on TV where somebody hits somebody in the head and they fall and they have this euphoric experience. That's not at all what's going on here. They are falling down before the awesome, holy God, experiencing the fear of the Lord and honoring Him in worship by falling down. Okay? And, and that brings up a point. This is physical Worship, not just cerebral worship, okay? God created us with a physical part of us and a spiritual part of us, and so we're supposed to worship Him with everything about us, with our physical, with our spiritual, with our minds, our bodies, etc. That's how we're called to worship Him. Uh, there are three major types of worship found in the Bible that God desires. There is celebration, intimacy, and awe. 
And all three are expressed in the scriptures as how God wants us to worship him. First, there's celebration. That's the, you know, where you're shouting and dancing and clapping and and singing to the Lord at the top of your voice. That's celebration with musical instruments and giving thanksgiving. Guess what? That is in the Bible. That's how he likes to be worshipped. Celebration. Okay, there is also intimacy where we focus on him and and like David express our words of love to him. And sometimes we might even close our eyes and just focus on him and express our love to him. By the way, all those acts, physical acts, I I said clapping, you know, uh, uh, dancing, all those things. Those are all in the Bible, except closing your eyes is actually never found in the Bible. Did you know that? Not even for prayer. It's not in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying you can't do that. Of course, it's fine. But sometimes we're so focused on the intimacy, we, we just think it's about me and Jesus. Okay? And that is not what we're supposed to think. We together worship God in harmony. And we're supposed to see that as true. But this intimacy is one aspect of our worship of God. But then there's awe. And this is the part that I think is just almost absent so often in churches today, where we need to recognize his holiness, that he is incredible, he is other than us. And so the natural thing is to fall down before him, to bow before him. That's what they're doing. You know that song, I can only imagine, right? What it will be like. And you wonder, am I going to fall down before him or am I going to dance before him? Listen. I know exactly what every one of us is going to do first. And that is fall down at the Lord's feet and worship him. In awe, going, wow, you are amazing, incredible, way beyond me, oh God. And then we might get up and dance and sing and this and that. So we'll do all of that, you know, I can only imagine. But, But at first it will be this. And so the awe, there is a silence too. The Bible talks a lot about being silent before the Lord together in worship. So often we, you know, maybe we're afraid to, you know, a little bit of silence comes on. And we're like, well, you, know, you got to kind of fill it with some, some, some noise or whatever. But that's not necessarily true. God wants all of this kind of worship. But we, once again, it says they fell down in unity. Not me. We. This, this is this corporate worship. Now, there are individual expressions But in chorus, together, we're not in competition with the leader who's leading us in worship. We're not fighting against each other and seeking to get attention or whatever like that. But we are together as we're being moved by the Lord, worshiping God together. It's critical that we see this part here about worship. Um, Very critical to me because one time I got hit with a flag. You know those people, they, they, sometimes they have the flags in the worship or whatever, you know, and there was a bunch of them, and they were just a flagging away, and, and they were trying to fly. One was flagging, trying to do more than the other, and I got whacked in the head. And it, it was hard to worship after getting whacked in the head by a flag. Okay? So, so I'm just saying, you know, we, we, we respect each other. We're together in this as we're worshiping God, okay? So they fell down, and this is they cast down their crowns. Now, 
Ekbalo, that's the Greek word here that it uses to cast down their crowns. Some translations are a little different. NIV translates it, they laid their crowns before him. And so they're using that word, and properly at times that word can be used in this way to, to say, uh, you know, just out of respect and humility, I'm just laying my crown down before you, Lord, because it's all about you, not me. And so a proper translation but most of the time, ekbalo is it's cast out, throw out. They're, they're in spontaneous worship. They, they cast their crowns before him. And so it could be either or. And I think since the band is called Cast Crowns, that probably just says that's got to be the way it is. Okay. But true. Okay. That, that would be where I'm leaning towards. That they're, 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 they're just spontaneous but humble worship, casting their crowns before him giving him honor and glory and praise. And it says they gave God glory. Oh, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. They gave God glory. But I want to ask you a question. How do you give God glory? We cannot add to God's glory because he's already infinitely glorious in his essence. But we can recognize his splendor and omnipotence and marvel and enjoy his glory with spontaneous praise as the result. To acknowledge and revel in his greatness and beauty from a heart that is moved by the experience is to give him glory. And that's what's going on here. That's what God hungers for from us. This spontaneous recognition of his greatness, his awesomeness, his beauty. And it says that they worship God as creator. He is the creator of the universe. There are many psalms that bring this out. And we see this, uh, Psalm 104, the whole psalm is all about God as creator. So it's a great way to worship God. He is the creator and we are not. Now this is also a very important point in recognizing this. You have created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. All forms of Gnosticism are evil. Gnosticism was a second century heresy that borrowed some things from Christianity, but they also borrowed some things from Greek thought, where the Greeks, many of them, many of the philosophers believe that the universe, the material world was inherently evil. And so to be saved was to be saved from the material realm and to only be spirit. And you, you achieve this through a secret knowledge or gnosis. That's Gnosticism. Uh, Marcion was one of the famous Gnostics who taught that the God of the Old Testament who created the physical realm, he was an evil God because He was so many emanations from the true God that he became evil and he created the physical realm and that was evil. And so we need to break away from that and only embrace the spiritual. Listen, that's a lie. 
The Bible says the true God, the one he's worshiping here, he created everything. The Old Testament God is Yahweh. He is the true God that we are to worship. And the creation is good. He said when he finished it, it was very good. We will never cease being physical in nature. When Christ returns, if you've already died, you get a new body at his return. If we're still around, we get raptured, we get these new bodies. But we will always live in a physical realm, a refurbished planet. That's what God's ultimate plan is. The physical realm is good. There's nothing the matter with matter. Now, there is a a religious activity going on right now within many, many churches up to Easter, and it's called Lent. And I just want to say something about that uh, is because it's becoming more and more popular for Protestant churches to get involved in Lent. But if, if you knew where Lent came from, the idea came from Those who were opposed to Gnosticism, Irenaeus and others in the second century spoke out very much against it, but then the church got influenced by it and started buying into the idea that, God, to really be spiritual, you abstained from the flesh, from the material world. And so the church wanted to get everybody in on before Easter to go through this month and a half time of just abusing yourself and stop not enjoying life. See, Lent originally, you didn't just not eat meat on Fridays. You didn't eat meat at all. And you had no sex. Okay, married couples we're talking about. Okay, So that's, uh, so, so, so it was all this thing, this idea that God somehow is pleased by our, you know, just not enjoying life. And that's a lie. That is not true. God loves to see his people enjoy his creation. Now, in a right and proper manner, there's a right way and a wrong way to enjoy it. And so sin is bad and it's wrong, but there's nothing wrong with matter itself. God created us this way. This is his plan. And it says here that Because of your will, they exist and were created. We are his. When you make something, it's yours. You create it for yourself, right? Or someone else, I suppose. Someone came to me after the service. He said, no, Larry, I work at a place, and I make stuff all the time, and none of it's mine. (laughs) Okay. But I think you know what I'm talking about here, okay? There, we are his. We were made for him, not the other way around. Until we get that right, we will never be happy. Not the way God wants us to be happy. There is no such thing as autonomy. Bob Dylan was absolutely correct when he sang that song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. It might be the devil, and it might be the Lord, but everybody's got to serve somebody. Okay? Uh, I got to see Bob Dylan twice in concert. One time in Portland, Oregon, I was center section, front row. There's Bob Dylan. When he sings, the spit is just flying. You know? That says you've got to serve somebody. Okay? But, but the point is here, okay, he was absolutely right, but... That's Romans chapter 6. 
but we get to choose who our master is. You can either continue in slavery to sin and to Satan, or you can choose God, the good, wonderful God, to be your master and follow him. We were created for him. We are his, and that's why we worship. Worship clears our vision. We need this. When we're going through tough times, we get our focus off the tough times when we get our focus on God. And we begin to worship him, recognizing he is on the throne. He is in control. It's not about me. It's about him. And then that's what helps us most to get through whatever tribulation we might have to experience. A.W. Tozier A.W. Tozier said, I can safely say, on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That's, That's a statement, isn't it? Let me read from Trevathan again. (laughs) To get the focus back on God. He's quoting C.S. Lewis. He says, as C.S. Lewis muses, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Is that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, suppose he had found us. So it is a sort of Rubicon. One goes across or not, but if one does, there is no manner of security against miracle. One may be in for anything. We need to be aware of that. The question is, are you ready for heaven? I think we should practice, okay? So so I want to invite the worship team to come up, and I want you all to stand up. And we're going to sing to the Lord, but we need to all together get our focus off of everything else except God. So together we're going to sing to the Lord in awe of his greatness. And all the stuff that we're going through will dissipate. And see at glass, the calm will be experienced. So let's worship God together now.
sense the calm, the glassy sea, God is on his throne. I hope that there was a moment where the troubles and difficulties and struggles in your life that you've been going through perhaps even this week was just dissipated for a while and you were able to get your focus on him. It doesn't mean we should just ignore our problems, don't get me wrong there. We need each other to help each other through the difficulties of life. God has called us together to do that, to help each other, to lift each other up, especially to point each other to God. And as we worship, it is the greatest cure of depression. It is the greatest cure of anxiety. It is the greatest cure of fears to focus on the Lord and worship Him, especially together. And may God give you a glimpse of His heaven this week where you see him seated on the throne and no matter what happens you know you can trust in him he'll see you through and great things are going to happen <laughs> in the midst of it all great things are going to happen and we can rejoice even in the midst of the trials and turmoil we know that Jesus is coming back who was and who is and who is to come amen may God bless you